Thanks, Ron. Well, morning. Did you know the best thing about this morning? Apart from the fact there's lots of good smiling new faces in here. My commute was five minutes. So... We've been living in Wilsonville, it's like a 40 minute drive to here. We've been doing that for seven months. So I got 40 more minutes in bed this morning. It was like heaven, so I can smile, I have energy. Because you know, normally I'm low in energy when I'm up here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we've moved in. Do you know, we just so appreciate all your patience because it's been a while. You've been waiting for this for a while and we promise once we've unpacked the boxes, you can come hang out. Uh, or you can do what Jack and Josh do and just call us and say, we're coming for dinner. And I'm like, great. Uh, Ella and Ewan absolutely love it. So anyway, we're here. So um, we are in this series called Sent where we're looking at the book of Acts. And why are we doing it? Just to keep holding it before us who have been in the series. If you're new, this, this gets you oriented. But uh, this church has been in a transition for the last, what, two years, two plus years. Um, and so we're in this season. I started here seven months ago, and, and we're asking, where does God want to take this church? What's his heart for this community? What's his heart for the people out there? And, and how do we get the bodies in here out to do God's work in the world around about us? So if you want to figure out what the church is supposed to be like and what we're supposed to do as the church, Acts is always just a good starting place. Um, because that was the early church trying to figure out what life as the people of God looked like. And so we've been working our way through the book of Acts systematically, just asking, like, how do we recover God's vision for the church being sent people into the world? So this week, we're looking at Acts chapter 12. And this is like, this is one of those really fun, crazy stories. So we're going to look this morning at a miraculous intervention, a miraculous prayer moment um, as God moves in, in the life of the early church. So uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 12. I'm going to start right at the end of Acts chapter 11, um, because the events that are happening, the story we're about to read, are kind of bookended by this mission trip that, that Paul and Barnabas are doing. And it's all around God's intervention as his people gather corporately to pray. So let's start at the end of Acts chapter 11, verse 27, and it'll be up on the screen here. During this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Sixteen guys watching over this one dude. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Little side note here. This word earnestly praying, uh, the Greek word ektenos, uh, it doesn't appear very often in Scripture. There are four times, essentially, in the whole Bible that, that it pops up. Two of the times it's talking about how we love other people, like love deeply. 
But Luke uses, uh, Luke uses it twice. He uses it once in Luke and once in Acts. So here he's talking about the church praying fervently. The other time that Luke uses this is chapter 22, verse 44, Jesus in Gethsemane. And it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood fallen to the ground. So that gives you an idea of the kind of fervor that Luke is alluding to as the church are praying for Peter in prison. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Crazy. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a service named Rhoda, which means Rose, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it, and then exclaimed to everyone, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, ah, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and then ordered that they be executed. Okay, little side note here, because in this part of the story, you're like, that seems really unfair. Let's just remember, this is not American prison guards in a nice prison in America. This is like first century, like ancient prison where the people in charge of monitoring the prisoners like rape and sodomize and beat and brutalize and starve and ridicule. So these are not nice people, so they might deserve what they get. Um, <clears throat> but there's forgiveness in Jesus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? Uh, <laughs> I, sh I should keep, keep my mouth shut. There we go. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. <laughs> I love the Bible. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, remember, they were set to take uh, provision to the 
to the church in Antioch. They returned from Jerusalem, or by Antioch to Jerusalem. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And they're introducing in this chapter John Mark, who we alluded to last week. So, okay, there's a couple of things in this passage that I want to just highlight before we talk about what I want to talk about, because that's the way I like to operate, right? Try and squeeze as much in as possible. Um, So the, the first thing, just to remember, in this story, this story all happens within the context of God's people gathering to pray, right? So you get that first verse, and I think it's verse six, where it says, Peter's in prison, and the church is earnestly praying for him. And then you get this moment when Peter is released from, from prison, and what does he do? He heads straight to John Mark's house, where he knows the people are gathered to pray. So this whole story is kind of bookended, or inclusio, as we talked about last week, is bookended with this prayer gathering and, and the emphasis that Luke continues to make all the way through this gospel, that the gospel goes forth when God's people gather corporately to pray. So that's what's happening in, in, this, in this, this part of the story. Um, oh, the second thing I was going to say was the death of the guards, but I already got there. Um, so I want to approach the topic a little bit differently today than, than how I normally do this. And, and forgive me, right? I'm hoping I've proven myself enough that you'll trust me with this. this like, I, I don't want to just walk through this passage. I actually want to frame our conversation today around some quotes outside of the Bible about prayer. <sighs> oh. um, because there, there are some things on my heart, some things that people have been saying, and as I've been kind of going to meet in meetings with pastors, going to citywide prayer events, there are things that people have been sharing that I've just been collecting, and I feel like God wants to share them with us. So it's okay, I'm going to use the Bible too, right? Uh, so, so I want to share a few things here um, to, to just emphasize the importance of prayer and, and hopefully elevate our faith in the area of prayer. So the first thing I want to say is this. Prayer is the most resisted activity on the planet. Dr. Mark Jones is the prayer pastor at Manor House in Northeast Portland. I serve on the prayer PDX team with him, and this is one of the phrases he says all the time. Prayer is the most resisted activity on the planet. You know this, because whenever you think about prayer, or whenever someone teaches on prayer, you leave going, I want to pray more, And tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray, and everything in the world stops it from happening, right? When I get home today, I just want to sit down, grab my Bible, my journal, and I'm going to pray. And then the faucet breaks, a neighbor stops by, your mom calls, like everything happens to get in the way of our ability to pray. Prayer is the most resisted activity on the planet. We know this from Scripture right? We live in the middle of a spiritual war. Ephesians 6, this isn't on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you, but you can write down Ephesians 6, chapter 10, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, then you fast forward a couple of verses. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. We live in the middle of a spiritual battle. One of the, there are two huge instruments we have in this fight. One is the Word of God, and one of them is praying in the Spirit at all times. The enemy of our souls knows that if he can get you away from God's Word and get you away from prayer, he's going to win. Satan is terrified of Christians who know the Word and are people of prayer. And in the church in the Western world, he's kind of winning, Right? We've departed from the truth of Scripture. Churches have become prayerless. And then we sit going, why are people not coming to faith? Why does the world hate us? Why are we not seeing miraculous things happening in the church round about us? Because we've gone away from this. Prayer is the most resisted activity in the planet. You know it. So this means we have a battle that we have to wage in our own life and corporately as a church. You're going to have to fight to be a person of prayer. Because as soon as you make the commitment that I'm going to devote myself to being his instrument to transform this world, everything is going to come in the way of your ability to do that. As soon as we make decisions that as a church, we're going to press deeper and deeper into prayer, corporately, we're going to experience resistance. Because the enemy doesn't want us praying. Because he knows as soon as we open our mouths in prayer, he has to flee. The church is under attack. Prayer is one of the first things to go, and we see it in our busyness, in our boredom in prayer meetings, <laughs> in the lifeless way that we experience prayer, and the powerlessness within the church. It's resisted. Are you going to let the enemy win, or are you going to stand and fight? Number two, God is on the lookout for praying churches. So Mark Jones, who gave that quote at an event last week, he was sharing and he says, I love this image of prayer. He's like, prayer is like vapor. He's like, think of the water cycle. You pray and the vapor goes up in the air. It's collected in a big bushy cloud. And then at the right moment, it just starts raining water over the earth. And then the water evaporates into prayer. And I was like, that's an amazing image of what happens when we're praying. Our prayer goes up like vapor. The cloud is forming, and then God is just waiting on enough vapor in that cloud to rain it down over our church, over your life, over your situation, over our city. One of my favorite verses that I come back to over and over again, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. So God right now is up there and he is ranging. His eyes are looking like Sunday morning. He's looking out over Portland and going, where are the churches that are going to commit themselves to prayer, that are going to become my instruments and agents to pour out power on the earth? He's ranging and he's looking, ready to strengthen us. You've got verse earlier in 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is a famous one. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. 
Uh, God's waiting on people who will humble themselves, who will seek him, who will pray so that he can pour out his power on this earth. I mean, if you need more scripture, you can go back and listen to the Praying with Paul series. I feel like that's a good, convincing argument. All of those passages and Paul's letters that talk about us as the church and what we're required to pray, God is on the lookout for praying churches. Notice, I didn't say God is on the lookout for individual praying Christians. So here's the deal. He wants both. You need to be an individual praying Christian. Whenever the Bible is talking, it's usually talking to individuals in community. So God wants you to be a praying person. But more than that, he wants us as communities to be praying communities. Now remember what just happened in Acts. Peter goes to prison. All of the church gather and start praying. Peter's in prison, we don't know how long for. As soon as he's out, he knows exactly where to go when the prayer gathering is happening. And I mean, any church other than the white Western church, to be honest, I rail on us, this is me too, right? <laughs> like, you go to India, they have prayer meetings every night. You go to the Latino churches in the US, they have prayer meetings almost every day. They know when prayer is happening. And so I love this moment. Peter, it's like, oh, this wasn't a vision. I'm outside. Oh, let's go to John Mark's house. Prayer is happening. That's where I'll meet the praying people. God is on the lookout for praying churches. Are we going to be a praying church? That means we've got to turn up and pray together. It means we've got to prioritize gathering and prayer to see God move. Number three here, you are deliberately and strategically placed I think it's easy to forget this. You look at your situation and you think, oh, life is hard. There's horrible things going on in my life. I don't like my job. There's family issues. I don't like my house, my neighbors. Some of you are like, my life is awesome and I love it all and poor you. <laughs> uh, but you are deliberately and strategically placed. Your house is in a street that God chose because he wants you to be an intercessor transforming the neighbors around you. God placed you in the family you're in, either birthed into that family, adopted into that family, fostered by that family, married into that family. God placed you there so that you can be used by Him to transform the dynamics that are around about you. You're here this morning because God chose for you to come and worship with us because He wanted your body, your presence, the passions on your heart, the, the Spirit as He's groaning and interceding inside. He needed you here this morning to change the dynamics that are happening in this church and in this city. Um, you're deliberately and strategically placed. There are no accidents. Here's the difficulty, though. <laughs> Often, we don't take up the mantle that's been put on our shoulders. So we're strategically placed in a neighborhood, in a school, in a workplace, and in a family, and then we fail to pray for the people that God's placed around us. We fail to step out in boldness to offer them the hope that they're desperate for. We're strategically placed. Uh, and so we have to wrestle with that truth. Do you really believe that you're strategically placed? The people that you're working around are people that God has placed you to rub up against to transform. Do you really believe that God has placed you in a family purposefully to impact the dynamic within your household? Do you really believe that God can use you to impact the people that live in the house next to you, across the street from you, down the road from you, 
because there is no accident. I believe there is work on this earth. It's, it's almost like, you know, iPhones now, you have your fingerprint scanner. I believe there are people and ministries and activities in this world that will only be unlocked by your fingerprints. There is someone in this world who will only come to faith by your interaction in their life. God has sovereignly ordained your life, your prayer, your conversation, your friendship to rescue them from darkness to light. The question is, are we going to step up and are we going to uh, join that work? Number four here, uh, God has endowed you with the power to make a difference. Another favorite passage of mine, Proverbs 18, 21, is so simple. It says, for the tongue has the power to bring life or death. God has given you the power to bring life or death with this thing. Uh, <laughs> you go back to Genesis 1.1. God creates the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on. Darkness hovers over the face of the deep. And then it says, God spoke. With one word from his mouth, everything we know existed. And then we're told we're made in the image of God. Part of the image of God in us is that our words bear power just like his word bears power. Um, and so God has endowed you with the power to make a difference, whether that's the words of hope you speak over someone, whether that's the negative words you use to tear people down, but it's also using our voice in praise of him, in prayer and intercession for the world round about, like your words have the power to change the world. Are you going to step into that and use it? Um, one little side note, if, if we were to go back to the passage in this, we have the power to transform things. But at the end of the day, God is ultimately in control and we don't always understand the decisions he makes or why he does the things that he does. This passage is all about Peter's miraculous rescue from prison. But did you remember how the story started? Herod arrested James and killed him. Do you think the church wasn't praying for James? Do you think they were like, oh, let's not care about him. We won't gather and fervently pray for him. Let's just gather and fervently pray for Peter. The church was probably gathered fervently praying for James and his release. As I'm, I'm sure there were lots of moments in there where they were like confident that God would do something powerful. But James didn't get the answer that Peter did. Um, but it didn't stop them praying. It didn't stop them interceding. Uh, we've got to trust God that the answer that he gives is the right answer. And we've got to invoke him to do that change. Uh, I think I've used this quote here before because I love it so much. Martin Luther said, To be a Christian without prayer is no more, no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. There are a lot of Christians in this world that are the walking dead. If you were to look at your life, and just, just take your week. This is a simple exercise. Take your week and just break up, like, how much time did you spend praying on Monday? How much time did you spend praying on Tuesday? How much on Wednesday? And add it all up. Like, what's the quantifiable number of how much prayer that you invested in the week. And then you can try something else, like how much time did you spend fishing? How much time did you spend watching TV? How much time did you spend playing video games? How much time did you spend reading fiction? Like, it, it, it's scary when you start doing that comparison. 
Because we all say prayer matters. We all say we want to be people of prayer. We all say we want to see God move. And yet we rarely give God the amount of time that is necessary. And then we ask, why am I not getting freedom from sin? Why am I not seeing people come to faith? Why do I not have more boldness to share the gospel? Because we're not asking for the power. We're not tapping into the power source that makes these things possible. In John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. And he goes on to say, uh, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. Like that relationship between abiding in him and the movement to prayer. Like it's impossible to have life if we're not people of prayer. So we've got to step in. Um, are you breathing? Or are you the walking dead? Michelle Jones you met Michelle when she preached here a few weeks ago. I love when she talks about prayer. She says prayer, she actually just says prayer is agreement. Um, but prayer is coming into agreement with God. It's like if we talk about prayer as conversation, then you can just sit and say whatever you want. If you talk about prayer as intimacy, then it's all about this moment of trying to connect and have this intimate experience. She's like those things are good and important, but she's like prayer is agreement. It's sitting on your knees and wrestling with God, wrestling with his word. It's why in pre-service prayer, we get to the end, God, why should you answer these prayers? Like we're coming in agreement with you. These are the things your word says, and we're gonna pray that these happen. Um, it's, it's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. The prayer of agreement, wrestling for hours in the garden. I don't like what's ahead of me. I don't like what's facing, but God, your will. I'm just going to agree with you. I'm going to submit and surrender to you. Um, are we coming into agreement with God or are we fighting against him? What are the things you're asking him for? God, I really want to see this happen in my life. Have you stopped to say, God, do you want this thing for my life? Uh, I really want this job. I really want this house. I really want this car. I really want this spouse. I really want marriage. I really want these things. Have you stopped and said, God, what is your will for me? And let me agree with that instead. God, what's your will for our church? Not our plans, but your plans that we will come into agreement with. And then Jesus, and all the times he's teaching on prayer, you know, ask whatever you will in my name. Not a formula, but a statement of agreement asking for what Jesus would ask for. Next one, we are often the answer to our own prayers. Um, there's a great book um, called Intercessor, uh, Reese Howell's Intercessor by Norman Grubbs. It's a biography of this amazing intercessor in the, in the UK in the 1800s, late 1800s. Um, but he, it's the, the book just kind of catalogs his uh, conclusions from a life of prayer. And at one point, he, he writes this, um, or, or Norman Grubb writes this about Reese Howells. He was never again to ask God to answer a prayer through others if he could answer it through himself. This included with his money. How many times do you hear someone say, oh, I, we need this thing for a mission trip. Oh, I'll pray for it. I'll ask God to provide the money that you need to go do your trip. What if God wants to use you to be the answer to the prayer that you're praying? What if in the church, instead of just praying all the stuff, we actually said, I feel passionate enough about this issue that I'm actually going to step in and do something about it. Uh, 
What if we allowed ourselves to be the answers to the prayers that we're praying? God wants to do that with his church. We are praying for the community to come to know him. We need to be the answer to that prayer. We're praying for a Bentley Street revival. So we need to be the answer to that, that, that problem. We're praying that the lost out there would come in these doors. We need to be the answer to those prayers. And we're praying that God would send people to the ends of the earth. Maybe someone in here is one of those people that God wants to send to the end of the earth, supported by our church, to do the work that God has called them to do. The last quote I've got is, I think it's my favorite prayer quote. Um, I still remember the first time I read this book, Red Moon Rising. And there's this image in the middle of it that just blew my mind. God is mobilizing an army but it's a broken army that marches on its knees. Remember how we started? It's a spiritual war. Prayer is the most resisted activity on the planet. The enemy of our souls is trying to wound us so that we're unable to participate in the battle, but God is building a broken army, and it's our wounds and our brokenness that actually make us more effective at being intercessors. Intercession is really identifying with the pain and the struggle of someone else to enter into their shoes to pray a different reality into being. Our brokenness lets us sit with someone else and enter into their pain, enter into their suffering and cry out to God on their behalf for transformation to happen. I love this image because we don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be like a super prayer. You don't have to be eloquent and have big words. You can sit in a room in silence and just groan because God knows what's on your heart. Um, but God is building an army. It's a broken army that marches on his knees. Are you part of the army? Are you on your knees asking God to move in the way that he wants to move? I have big hopes for this church. I've heard you talk about the big hopes that you have for what God will do in our midst, what he'll do as we reach out to the community around about us. It's not going to happen if we're not on our knees. You have big hopes and dreams for your life. It's not going to change if we're not on our knees. I want to conclude with a story that's from that same book, um, just a, a little illustration from uh, Pete Gregg's book, Redmond Rising, and it's, it's up here. Uh, but I think it's, it's a provocative image of, of being people of prayer. Suddenly, I find myself in a giant hall. Surrounding me are thousands of young people, battered, bruised, and broken. Then suddenly, I hear a voice. What am I bid? A young girl stands out before a crowd of leering, sneering men. What am I bid for this piece of flesh? The men start to cheer and shout figures, 10, 20, 50, 100. What can I do, God? I start to bid. I have to save her. The cost becomes huge and I begin to waver. Can I afford this? What price will I pay? The dream stops. I'm alone again, but the faces are real enough. Sarah has been sold into prostitution. Mike with a revolver in his mouth, Cat covered in cuts and bruises, John falling into crime, Laura alone and desperate, Steve, heroin needle bulging into his vein. What am I bid? The voice shatters the silence. The auction is on again. The bidding has begun. It continues day and night until the end. Most of the bidders desire only to use and abuse. Satan drives them on. And so I find myself in the auction. Will I watch 
or will I bid? The price of a single life is huge. The currency is prayer. The cost is massive, but the prize is glorious. A life for a life. What am I bid? What am I bid? Do we want to be a church that talks about it? Do we want to be a church that does it? Um, this means there's going to be some, we have to do some internal reckoning. We have to do some life evaluating. We have to do some scripture and soul searching. And then we have to do some reorganizing to be people that will be on our knees asking God to transform the world around about us. You probably feel unable. You probably feel unqualified. You probably feel unworthy. But God wants to use you, your voice, your broken heart, your messy situation to change the world around about us. Um, so we're going to take some time now to pray before we sing our last song. And, and here's kind of the situation. I want us... It, it's COVID, so this is a little bit tricky. So some people don't want to be close, mask, masks on if we're getting a little close. But there are some situations in our church that we really need to pray for. Um, and so what, what I want to do is we're just going to have an open time of prayer. So if you're here and you have a situation going on in your life where you're saying, I need God to intervene, um, then like right now, can I just have you stand up actually just now? Um, now look at this, there's a lot. <laughs> um, so we want to take some time to anoint and to pray that God would move. So I, I'm going to pray for us um, kind of all together. And then uh, we're just, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many people standing up that I'm like, I don't know the best way to do this now. Um, so there are a couple of situations that are really important. We're going to, ha we're going to uh, pray for Tim Varela. Um, we've been praying, praying for him. We're, we're going to gather around him and pray. Um, Dean is here. We'll pray for Dean. Um, Bill and Ruth, uh, there's, there's just a bunch of health and cancer issues that we want to pray for. And then there's everything else. So I'm going to pray. What I want us to do is just gather around the people next to you. If, they, if you're not standing up, go gather around some people. You don't need to say very much. Um, just get as close as you're comfortable. If that's just stretching out a hand toward them, do that. If that's actually laying a hand on someone, ask them if they feel comfortable enough to have your hand on them. And let's pray. Um, and then I'm actually going to invite people to come forward and we're going to anoint with oil and we're going to gather and we're going to pray for God to move. So we're going to just spend some time now praying uh, and asking God to move. And I'm going to, like, we're going to deal very specifically with, with Tim and Dean and Bill and Ruth at the end as we gather around them all together. So you can pray for them now, but we're going to do that specifically. And we're going to ask God to move. Um, so I'm just going to pray now and then we'll just take some time to pray for one another. Um, God, you're the God who created the world. Um, scripture is very clear in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth it's very clear in Genesis 3 that man sinned and sin entered the world and we now live and walk in brokenness um, but we know how the story goes that Jesus came that he died that he was raised to the right hand of the father we're told that all things were placed under his feet we're told that he disarmed the powers of darkness making a public spectacle of them at the cross we're told in Ephesians that we're seated 
on the throne with Christ at the right hand of God, which means everything is placed under our feet. So God, we come with the authority you've given us to pray your power to bear and the people in our church. God, we want to see change. We want to see transformation. You're the God who heals. Would you heal? You're the God who reconciles. Would you reconcile? You're the God who frees. Would you break the chains? God, we don't want to be a lifeless church. We want to be an army marching on our knees, seeing you move in power. So would you move in power in Jesus' name? So let's take some time and, and just a couple of people pray out for the people around about you, and then we'll gather up and pray.